Hello and welcome to the DigiDay podcast. I'm Lara O'Reilly, DigiDay's senior correspondent based out of a very rainy London today. Joining us on the show is Jim Roberts this week. You might know Jim from his long tenure at the New York Times before he went on to become Mashable's chief content officer and then later editor-in-chief at Cheddar. Now, earlier this month, Jim made the move into non-profit journalism by joining The 74, the US education news site founded by former CNN host and current Facebook head of global news partnerships, Campbell Brown. So Jim, welcome to the DigiDay podcast. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Um, so you're now the 74's publisher and chief strategy officer as of a couple of weeks ago. Um, so how's it, how's it been starting a new and kind of entirely different job completely remotely? Well, you could probably, I think you just summed it quite uh, up quite well. Um, it's uh, been quite an adjustment. The remote part, actually, you know, we've had plenty of time to get used to the notion of working remotely. I've been doing it some fashion, obviously, since mid-March. Um, so that part, I think I had uh, largely overcome. But um, <laughs> the role is completely different for me, you know, my entire career. And it's, a, you know, there are many years attached to it. Uh, the, my entire career has been spent in newsrooms um, managing reporting teams or, you know, most recently a broadcast news team. Um, so for me, just the simple adjustment of moving on to more of the, fi- the finance side of a publication is a, is a new venture completely. The obviously other new part is joining the nonprofit world. I've you know, spent all of my time in for-profit media, um, which, as everyone knows, is a, is quite a difficult endeavor, uh, whether it's maintaining a base of subscribers or maintaining the advertising base that you need uh, in digital, working for page views, ad impressions. It's a, that's a difficult, very, very difficult slog um, for many publications. It, it, you know, it has been, I mean, the business started really turning almost, you know, 15, 20 years ago with the uh, turn toward digital and just the, the business disruptions that have occurred and continue to occur, to, to occur on the for-profit side um, make it very difficult to produce journalism, just flat out. So um, joining, non-profit, joining the nonprofit world was a very intriguing one for me. But again, um, it's been quite an adjustment the last couple of weeks. Sure. And I, you know, I appreciate you've barely got your feet under the, um, I guess, metaphorical desk yet. Um, but for the uninitiated, can you just give us a brief rundown as to kind of what the 74 is, uh, the 74 million, should I say, and why it was founded and what kind of sets it apart from other outlets covering the U.S. educational system? Sure. Uh, so it's uh, just over five years old. Um, as you mentioned, Campbell Brown, formerly of CNN, now Facebook, and uh, her partner at the time, Romy Drucker, they were, they are, were the co-founders. They um, set it up. Um, with a, you know, with a very specific purpose. And the full title of the site is the 74million.org. Uh, we all call it the 74. That's what's on the, you know, the, the label on the site. That's what the social handle is. The 74 million does refer to the 
number of children in the United States. So this is, you know, an estimate of the, the K through 12 population. And it's the population that we intend to serve and have been trying to do so since the, uh, since the advent of it. The publication, you know, we, we view it as a national publication in the sense that the issues that we address are very national in scope. We think, you know, we basically think nationally report locally, if that makes sense. Um, the idea being that many of the challenges, if not crises, in American education, while they may vary some from city to city, you know, there are some obviously some common threads and some and, you know, particularly when it comes to, to things like student achievement. So um, the the idea is to try to look at obviously the problems, the things that are getting in the way, the impediments to student achievement and the innovations and the innovators who are working just kind of overcome them. And again, to do that kind of reporting as locally as we can, to focus on the voices within the communities, but to try to present it in a way that may have resonance beyond that community itself. Um, and, you know, it's no secret that there are many publications, um, uh, digital ones in, in, you know, in particular, many publications that are devoted to this subject. We again, sort of see our differentiation in the way I just expressed it by, uh, you know, thinking nationally and reporting locally. Um, and we really do think of our audience, I mean, we start with the parents. We, are, we start with the parents and their children, the, the, you know, students and their parents really form the core of who we are attempting to appeal to and who we are attempting to serve. Now, I think, you know, depending on the publication, others are maybe more aligned with the education establishment. Maybe some are more aligned with teachers or administrators. Others may see their mission um, as serving more of the policy world, policy wonks. You know, we don't certainly ignore any of those sides, but our, our focus really is how can we make these issues most relevant to the people they matter to the most, again, meaning students mm -hmm. and their parents. What would you say is the, if you could point to one thing, like what, what's the single biggest story in education right at this, this moment? It's easy. It's a pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. It, you know, I think I, I've, I've kind of been aware of the 74 for several years I first became acquainted with um, the editorial team right around three, three and a half years ago. And at the time, you know, they were focusing on what they saw then as the, the, the crisis in American education, the, the achievement gaps that were, you know, could be seen across the country, in particular those in disadvantaged communities. Right. Um, that crisis to me just exploded exponentially as a result of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. the, the, the fact that, um, you know, almost overnight, oh, well, all of our lives, uh -huh. you're in London, your life was disrupted. In New York, my life was disrupted. Everyone's life has been disrupted in the past, what, eight months now. But the impact on 
schools has been, I just, it, it's been extraordinary. And when I think, and I, you know, I've, I've thought this through and I've talked this through with a number of people, when I think about the pandemic and sort of think of the, you know, where it has hit the hardest, you know, of course it's an enormous health issue. Um, you know, people sadly, very sadly are still dying and in mm-hmm. enormous numbers, people are still getting sick. The the impact on public health is enormous. The impact on the economy, we are still, you know, in the United States, we are still very deeply in a recession. Um, obviously, it is playing out on a political level, too. It is very, you know, very likely to have significant impacts when voters uh, cast their ballots on November 3. Um, but the fourth impact, the, the fourth really major impact that I do see is what's happening in schools. Um, Again, overnight, kids were basically told, you know, everything changes. You're not coming in. You have to, if you're going to be educated, if you're going to, to, you know, be part of your continuing education, you have to do it through your laptop. Mm. Um, And you need a, you need a broadband connection to do that. So given that the 74 has paid, you know, significant amount of attention, again, to, to student achievement gaps and how they differ among socioeconomic groups, uh, the pandemic just has exacerbated those problems. If you were if you were poor and disadvantaged before the pandemic, and you were struggling to get a quality education, I can imagine that it is just you know yeah. exponentially more difficult now. So. Um, I, you know, I, I tried to give you a one word answer to your question, which was the pandemic. But um, hopefully that explains why that is the biggest single issue in American education today. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about um, you're reading a lot nowadays about the the K-shaped recovery as it pertains to the the economy. And I, I imagine that just really applies to education as well. This this kind of bifurcated um recovery um if there is one on the on the on the bottom half of the k at all to talk about at the moment um i wanted to talk about your your role specifically um kind of what what is it that you'll be doing and how do you see that evolving over time so again this is the uh this is the the career pivot that i have made um I am, you know, firmly on the, you know, so-called business side of the publication. And, you know, you as a, as uh, a member of the media know that um, at every publication or um, broadcast outlet, there is the, you know, the editorial or the content side and there is the business yeah. side. Um, the activities differ by the, by the business models. But for us, it is, you know, as I said, it is a nonprofit. We, um we exist um, because we have some you know, very generous support from foundations, and so my job is to you know be the be the glue between the foundations who support us and the publication itself. Um, I you know among my missions is to be in contact with them, make them understand what we are doing, how we're doing it. And, you know, really how they're they're getting value for their their contributions to us. Um, I also hope to be able to um, grow those finances, to be able to um, uh, find new donors who are willing to support the work that the 74 does. Um, 
you know, then there are the other tactical measures um, that I'm, you know, very, well, actually strategic and tactical that I'm very interested in, in trying to work on, which um, pertain to audience growth, pertain to increasing the impact of our publication. Um, I want more people to be aware of it. I want more people to know the of the work that we are doing. And um, I think that um, or at least I hope that I can do some good in those areas. I, w- I was going to ask you, um, because you have spent your career working at kind of for-profit media organizations, what, what you thought was going to be different about working at nonprofit. But I actually think maybe a better question is, what, what do you envision being the same, given that you have uh, at least one less stakeholder, you don't have advertisers? Yeah. Well, I mean... Ultimately, a publication or broadcast is a transaction between you and the audience. Mm. And um, no matter whether it's advertisers who are paying the bills or foundations who are paying the bills or subscribers who are paying the bills, um, you've got to connect with an audience and you've got to be relevant to that audience. This is something that has you know, meant a lot to me through my career. And you know, I've pivoted a number of times um, <laughs> in terms of the type of publication or the type of news organization that I worked with. Um, but We'll get onto those, by the okay, way. Okay, <laughs> okay. But, but I do think, you know, it is that transaction. It is creating something that needs to be relevant and of value to your audience. I mean, it's really kind of mm. simple, maybe even simplistic as I try to discuss it. But I, I think how that translates, get this, I think gets to your question, how that translates is creating the type of content that your audience appreciates, values, and trusts. Those are, those are really important ingredients here. You know, I, I remember having, you know, conversations um, back not that long ago when a lot of um, a lot of digital content was being consumed off of social platforms. And there was certainly, mm-hmm. a, you know, some justified criticism about um, clickbait and, you know, doing material only for traffic and, and such. Sure. But the way I always felt about that was, yeah, of course, you know, there are some, you know, shady, underhanded ways of getting people to click on an article. But again, ultimately... Traffic is a measurement of your appeal and your value to that audience. If they don't want to read it, they will go somewhere else. Or if they don't want to view it, they will go somewhere else. It's just, it's something that I've really felt is critical, whether you're creating content for the New York Times or for Mashable or BuzzFeed or Digiday, you have to make that transaction with your audience. And I do believe that for a publication like the 74, even though the funding stream is, is you know, completely different, we've got to do the same thing. We have to create content. We have to do our reporting in a way that uh, it fundamentally interests our audience, is relevant to the audience, and that the audience trusts. And so, you know, in that regard, it's, it's a, you know, it's a seamless transition from yeah. one business model to the next. I, I guess ultimately what you're talking about is, is impact. There's, mm-hmm. there's scale and, and you can juice scale. Um, 
Yes. But, you know, the clickbait, if, if you arrive there and it's not what you expected or it's just been cribbed from another website or, you, you know, you're not going to retain that audience. Whereas with impact, um, you know, scale is just a measure, I suppose, but it's it's impact that, that right. binds everybody right. together. That's what you want ultimately. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. how many uh, page views you get. And I think that's kind of where the, the word trust comes in. That, you know, once you were able to make that solid connection and create that impact, your, you know, your audience is more likely to trust you to be able to do that again and again. And we'll come back to you and will very likely um, feel comfortable either clicking on that article or watching that, that news segment, those sorts of things. Okay, time for a quick break. So again, with the caveat that you've spent two weeks or so working for a nonprofit so far, but um, do you think at this juncture that in kind of media history and the the kind of health of the media business at, at the moment and how kind of fractious it, it also is, that the industry kind of needs more nonprofit enterprises or more, I mean, we've had people like, we had Craig Newmark on the show over the mm-hmm. summer who's been, you know, donating millions mm-hmm. of dollars to journalism programs over the past four years and to journalism enterprises. But then I guess we've also seen with things like the, you know, the Atlantic and their layoffs earlier this year, having a, having a single wealthy benefactor doesn't necessarily make media outlets immune to the changing tides of the industry. Right. Um, so I guess my, my question to you is, is do you think just, with everything that's happened this year and in the years building up to it, we might see kind of more nonprofits um, pop up, more non- nonprofit media enterprises. Well, you're asking me actually two questions. The first one, the first one was, do we need more nonprofits? And I'm going <laughs> to, yes, well, true. I'm going to dodge that and perhaps come back to it um, <laughs> because I don't know whether, you know, whether we need it or not, it's happening. Mm. And this is good. This goes to your second, your, to your second question, which was, you know, are there more nonprofits? And um, I, think, I guess to, to tag on to that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, um, I think, yeah, I think this is all good. And I think that, um, you know, as disruptive as the last, I'm going to say, you know, let's say 18 years. I'm going to pick that number. It's somewhere between 15 and 20. <laughs> but as disruptive as the last 18 years has been um, for you know, the conventional media world. Um, The response has been, or the successful response has been through innovation. And that means innovation and storytelling techniques. You know, the simple fact that we're doing a podcast right now is one of those very innovative storytelling techniques. Um, But the innovation also is in business models. And again, if you work for a mainstream news outlet, you know, whether it's the the New York Times or CNN or the Wall Street Journal, you know, you name it. It's been the, the, the those last 18 years have been difficult. And, and some some of the best are, you know, have found their ways of not just surviving, but succeeding very well. Um, but everyone has come up with some, you know, you know, finds a different model. You have a specific model of Digiday that works for you. You know, when I was working at Cheddar, there was a very specific model that was working for them. Um, so what I see is just this this proliferation, this, you know, this flowering of very different models that um, are all being employed 
in the, you know, in the, you know, specific set of circumstances. Um, I was reading yesterday um, about this new, um, I don't know if it's a, you say new company um, called uh, CityCast, which is building um, a network of podcasts built around local news. Um, this was just announced yesterday and it will be a for-profit um, enterprise. So, you know, again, that's another, you know, that's a, a completely podcast focused business um, built on a for-profit business model. So I, I think that the growth and the, the diversity of business models is definitely a good thing. And I think that the the growth of nonprofits has been a good thing as well. Um, I was speaking just the other day with someone at the Institute for Nonprofit News, which is a gosh, is it? Could you call it a trade association? A, a you know a network of uh, news platforms such as our own. We are a member. Um, there are now two hundred and fifty or thereabouts news organizations that are now part of the Institute for Nonprofit News. So I think that gives you a certain, you know, indication of the uh, of the size. That seems um, like a lot. I'm not sure if that's yeah. kind of more or less than before. I'm, I'm assuming that's a. It, it is definitely growing. I could. <laughs> growing, I don't have. Yes. Yeah, I don't have a benchmark for it. But again, in my conversation, I'm not an expert on the organization. But many of the news organizations that are members of it um, are quite small. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, um, and, and quite new outfits that are, that are just getting on their feet. And I think having a network, a trade association like that is a very good thing for, um, you know, people who, who have an idea and, um, and want to reach an audience. So that was talking about new new models. I want to speak about kind of traditional newsrooms now. Mm-hmm. So your um, alma mater, the, the New York Times, you were there for... A long time. Yes. 20 odd years. 26 years. Yes. 26 years. Um, Wow. Um, So, and you know, that, that business is, you know, commercially speaking is having a a particularly good run at the the moment. I mean, journalistically speaking too, but we're all about the the business of media here. You know, Mm -hmm. things seem to be in a, in a good place. Shares performing well, digital's overtaken print, print might go away. (laughs) Um, Oh, I wouldn't, I'm not so sure about that. Um, (laughs) Do you think that was Mark Thompson just, um, Having a, a uh, well, kind of cheeky uh, yes, at some point <laughs> in, the, in his exit interview. Listen, at some point in the you know in the distant future, um, print will yes, it will go away. Is it in our lifetime? Uh, perhaps I um, <laughs> I don't know. I've um, you know we could we could go on and on and, and set up a betting pool for you know how long the New York Times will continue to print a physical newspaper. Um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think we'll see the end of that anytime soon. Okay, um, I'm going to say 15 years. Okay, all right, all right. That's a, <laughs> okay. I might I might go 20. I think 25. that's conservative. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so here, here's what I wanted to ask you about the New York Times. Sure. Um, so, as I say, it, it's it's had a particular kind of strong period. It's the kind of paper that and the business that 
people often refer to as having either a good pandemic or having solved a lot of the issues that that digital kind of threw at traditional newsrooms in the early days. It made digital work. It made readers pay for the stuff it does. It has, um, you know, it's diversified its revenue and and so on. Um, and appears to be, in, as I say, in, in good shape. They've they've um, you know poached lots of really good writers. They're doing they're mm-hmm. doing great journalism. Um, as I, as I mentioned, Mark Thompson, he's recently handed over the reins to Meredith. Um, do you see her having to kind of fend off any kind of big challenges or indeed kind of um, challenge, challenges any time soon? As, as I say, it just seems to be so far and away the, um, I, I don't want to say best performing, but it is, you know, New York Times is, is often the paper that people talk to as having solved a lot of these, these issues, mm-hmm. at least for now. I'm, yeah, I'm very impressed at how they've managed that um, and how they've um, you know, managed the transition to both the, you know, a, a very, very strong subscription, digital subscription model, um, as well as transition to, um, you know, a form of journalism that works well on all of its platforms. Now, that was a that was a, a significant struggle. And I was, you know, in the middle of it for, you know, quite a few years until I left the Times in early 2013. And the difficulties um, of, you know, working through that transition are not unique to the Times. Um, But I'm very happy with where they've come out. And, and, you know, I feel actually I'll I'll answer your question in in a slightly different way. One of the reasons I think that subscription models work is that the publication, assuming it's a publication or, you know, it could be, you know, know, kind of a different medium, but um, it's, it is, it goes back, it goes back to the word transactional. Mm. They have managed to make themselves essential for their audience. And I think, you know, if you as a publication, and it can you can be a big one or a small one, if you make your sense essential to someone's, um, well, financial well-being or someone's emotional or intellectual well-being, then I think you will be successful. And I think, you know, certainly in terms of the intellectual well-being, I think that, you know, Times has really executed that transaction incredibly well. Um, their audience depends on them for a certain type of reporting. That doesn't mean that the audience universally loves everything that they do. Um, the New York Times audience can be, you know, pretty demanding and, you know, at times quite critical of the work that they do, but they see it as essential and they're willing to pay for it. And I think that is really what, you know, the kind of the underlying aspect of their success. And yeah. And I think as long as that continues, as long as they continue to do the work that it's that their audience deems to be essential, they're going to be fine. Mm. Um, you mentioned that you'd worked at a real kind of breadth of businesses um, throughout your career. So, um, you know, you led Mashable's editorial team and um, you had a brief stint working in in PR. I did want to ask you, um, we haven't got too long left, but Mm -hmm. about Cheddar. I've always been really fascinated by Cheddar, um, but I've often struggled to understand it. Um, So, you know, Cheddar sold for like a not too shabby kind of $200 million to Altice um, or 
four mashables if you like um, and and i know you, <laughs> you did you your homework <laughs> <laughs> i know you obviously kind of don't speak for cheddar anymore but um what what i struggled to understand with that was like what's the business model now because it was always positioned as the post cable network and then um now it's owned by a cable network and it's well, there is a, a certain a division yeah, there, within one yeah i guess there is a certain irony there um i i still think that you know the the proposition is largely the same um, the, you know, the idea behind it was to deliver news on digital platforms, again, to, you know, more or less break free of the, the cable universe. Um, and that part hasn't changed. Um, you know, I, again, I don't know all of the, all of the partners that Cheddar is now working with, but sure. you know, they still are distributing it, um, distributing their content on, um, over the top networks as they had been, you know, largely from the start. And gas the, stations still as well, I heard. Um, as far as I know, as far as I know, that was, uh, <laughs> you know, and let me tell you, that was a great branding exercise. <laughs> um, so many people got to know Cheddar while they were filling up their tanks. Um, and uh, it, I think there are, you know, any number of people for whom that was the, you know, that was the main way that yeah. they learned of Cheddar. So, um, so again, I, I think, y you know, you could say that they have, you know, perhaps they are the post post cable network or something like that. Um, but the, you know, the core of that, the core of Cheddar continues to be, you know, what it was. Um, yes, it now has a significantly bigger audience because it's distributed on, um, the, you know, throughout the Altice cable network. I guess it's just I, I I even wonder about like what's the future of just the the rolling kind of news network model anyway you know because you've got I mean obviously all the traditional ones that we all know of but you know Bloomberg has Quick Take and you've mm -hmm. got um, Yahoo Finance has its thing um, and just disclaimer I did a brief bit of freelancing there um, uh, a couple of years ago um, and then you've got this like new Fox News style channel coming from News Corp in the UK yeah, as well I, yeah. I'm just not sure whether it, there's a sustainable model there it's expensive to well, do advertisers are leery of news at the moment I, I really won't you know deign to comment on that question I do think that uh, uh, imitation is a sincere form <laughs> of flattery and um, I think that uh, the people at Cheddar should be should be proud that News organizations like Bloomberg and Yahoo, uh, you know, basically followed in their footsteps and saw the value of delivering those kinds of mm. news, that kind of news programming um, in a digital form. Just to end on, you kind of describe yourself on Twitter as not only a deadhead, a very big Grateful Dead fan, <laughs> uh, also a student of news. Um, and you mentioned in your in your kind of letter from the publisher that you posted when you um, announced your appointment at the 74 that you were looking to kind of foster more experimentation and an aggressive in innovation. It, this is a very broad question, but what, what do you mean there? What kind of things are you looking at and either saying, you know, I want a piece of that, or what kind of things are you looking to um, build yourself to as, as you uh, look it's, to It's a really good question, and, and I, I may have to dodge a bit of it only in the sense that um, I, you know, I do need more time to, to, to you know, determine what is achievable. Um, sure. But in, in general, but, where are but, you but, kind but of my inspiring? Point was, my point in, was, was, yeah, my point was a really simple one that um, the – 
the innovations that digital communication have wrought, or, you know, innovation slash disruptions, but all of the ways in which a, uh, a news organization can reach an audience should be on the table. In other words, whether it's words or video or interactive data or podcasts, social, I've, I've just always been a, a, a strong believer that there is no single way of reaching an audience and that the, you know, the best of those transactions with the audience sometimes occur when you try something different. And, you know, I don't have a, I don't know that I have a, you know, what is the, what is the perfect recipe for achieving that? But I do feel that it's necessary to, um, to be open to experimentation and to try to say, you know, for this mission or for this story, and I don't mean just words on a page kind of story, I mean, for this journalistic enterprise, what is the right way of telling this story at this moment? And so that's, that really is what I was, you know, trying to, to say. Um, and just to be, I want to be open to it and I want to think through cost and benefit. Um, but um, there's no single way of delivering information. And I, you know, my goal is to make sure that the 74, um, you know, really explores all of its options. Sure. Well, Jim, best of luck in the new role. Thank you so much for joining us. Laura, I really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Um, I love the subject, you know, so I could talk at, at great length about all of these, um, all of the topics that you, you brought up. So um, thank you for doing it. Great. Well, let's have you back in a year and we'll see how you're getting on. Fantastic. This week's episode was produced by Ben Elman. Thank you ever so much for joining us today. As always, if you enjoyed the show, share it with someone you know, rate us, and we always love receiving feedback. You can email me at lara at digiday.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.